Well, thank you so much, team. Appreciate that. And they did a wonderful job leading us in worship, didn't they? I appreciate the focus on the Lord and His greatness. I mean, wonderful to see you today. I welcome you all to the service. You know, I was thinking as I was uh, coming up to the service today, um, it was 36 years ago this weekend that I was invited to be a speaker here at the church with the potential of being called as pastor. Uh, third weekend in October. And I didn't know anything special about that. I thought my being here was probably the most special thing the third weekend in October, uh, 1986. But... Uh, they said, well, we have a hotel room, hotel room for you and your wife, but it'll be a little distance away because a lot of the hotels are, are sold out. So I don't know how far out Interstate 40 it was, but it was way out there. Uh, Susan and I had a room, and uh, the game that year between uh, UT and the Alabama was back and forth and back and forth and back and forth, and uh, Alabama came out on top, real close game. And uh, so I found out a little bit about the third weekend of October, very first time I was here, and just so happened our room that night was next door to some very, very excited Alabama fans uh, who were so excited they decided to... Uh, not just be in the spirit, but drink some spirits, okay? And uh, they were up to about three or four in the morning. <laughs> I was wide awake. And I remember my message that morning was on the believer's recipe for peace. <laughs> and I got up thinking, what in the world do I know about that this morning? But that was 36 years ago uh, this weekend, and uh, I came to understand the third weekend in October. But with all my heart, I truly believe, I hope you do, that what we've been singing about, what we've been reading about, is the most exciting thing compared to an incredible football game. Uh, this, this is really, really uh, the most important, exciting thing that we could be involved in a weekend here in Knoxville. So you've heard uh, the reading of the scripture. I'll ask you to turn to Romans chapter 4 and been enjoying this journey uh, through Romans. And so turn there, if you would, chapter 4. Several years ago, I was uh, driving in the car and I heard the speaker share this story. It was a story about a frog who had jumped out of the, a pond on a farm and he had hopped and hopped and hopped. He made his way to the barn, and he just happened to hop inside and jump inside of a pail of freshly, uh, freshly, uh, fresh milk. And so there he is. And the one who told the story said, he just started paddling. He just started paddling. He just started paddling. Tried to hop out. Rim was too steep. He just started paddling, kept paddling, kept paddling, and he paddled so much, amazing thing happened. He churned the milk into butter, and he was able just to hop right out of the pail. Now, that's quite a story. And a little funny and far-fetched, but here's what was really tragic about that story. It was being told by a man who was a minister. And he was saying, you know, this is the way life is. You get into situations like this and you just have to keep paddling, you keep paddling, you keep paddling, and really, you just give it your all and God will help you to get out of whatever mess you're in. And that was his, his illustration. And as I was listening to that, I thought, you know, that is so typical of what is kind of on-the-street religion understanding. It really is. The, the idea that uh, you just keep doing your best, you just keep working at it, you do your best, 
And finally, you, you will achieve. And in the spiritual realm, that finally, if you try your best, you work your hardest, you'll be able to hop right into heaven someday. <laughs> well, that belief system, and whether that pastor understood what he was teaching that, in that illustration or not, is exactly the message of, yes, we, we need faith, but it, faith needs our works. We've got to do our part. And really, it is our works that's going to bring us to this point of salvation. And I want you to know that is a very popular, very common thinking. If you ask most people about religion, you'd probably get an answer something like that. But the reality is completely wrong, isn't it? It's completely wrong. The Bible really helps us to understand something, and I hope we do understand it. There are really only two kinds of religion. Now, I know there's hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of different expressions of religion in the world now and throughout history, but there's really only two kinds of religion. There's a religion that says, do, and then there is the message of the gospel which says, done. <laughs> done. It's do, you do. God will help you out, but you do this and you will provide salvation for yourself. But the Bible says no. It is done. It's done. That's the message of the New Testament. It's done. And so it's not surprising, brothers and sisters, that that is one of the things that Satan attacks more than anything else. And very early in the history of the church, he began to attack this understanding of free salvation in the free grace of God in Christ. Satan began to attack that, and here's the subtle but brilliant way in which Satan has attacked that. He's attacked it through religious, ritual, and tradition. So that practice of religion begins to be thought of as a true expression of faith. And that darkness from the early centuries of the church spread and spread and spread until it was like almost the light had gone out. But God says he never leaves himself without a witness, right? And in the 15th and the 16th century in Europe, God raised up men and women who began to share the incredible understanding that he gave them of the gospel, the reality that salvation is not of works, but it is by faith alone in Jesus Christ. And so the great theme of what we call the Protestant Reformation was fide sola, faith alone, faith alone. And God responded with that message and the gospel of Jesus spread across Western Europe, across the oceans, and continues to be blessed by his spirit. But I want you to know something. That sadly, over the years, spiritual darkness, led by the spirit of darkness, Satan, continues to try to bring back, even into churches, this idea that Jesus will help you out. God will help you out. But it is your work. It's your part. 
that makes you ultimately right with God. And the tragedy of that is that this morning, even, in thousands and thousands of churches, there are so many people who are clueless to the answer to this question. And here's the question. The question is this. How can a sinful man or woman be made right with God? That's the question of all questions, isn't it? How can a sinful man or woman be right with God? And the answer to that has nothing to do with religious works. The answer to that is in faith alone. Faith alone in Christ. And that is Paul's theme here in Romans chapter 4. You could call it the title to this chapter. I'm using it as the title of this message this morning. Faith alone. Faith alone. Now Paul realized that when he shared this message of salvation by faith alone, it would appear that he was sharing a new message. Uh, especially to his Jewish brothers and sisters, he himself being Jewish, who had been taught for so long that the way you are made righteous with God is by keeping the works of the law, following the rabbinical traditions, and, and participating in the ritual. It, uh, he had taught this himself. But by Jesus, he had come to know it's faith alone. It's faith alone in Christ. And so this became his message. And so Paul, in order to show that what he is teaching, that salvation is by faith alone, goes to the Jewish hall of faith, you could say. And he selects what could be considered the two greatest heroes in the Jewish hall of faith to show that they themselves are examples of being right with God only because of faith and not because of their works. And so the two great examples that Paul uses are found here in this chapter. It is the example of Abraham and the example of David. So let's look at this this morning. Faith alone. We see in Israel's greatest hero, greatest Hebrew, Abraham, that Paul says Abraham was made righteous by faith alone. Now, he's the father of the Jewish people. He's referred to as righteous Abraham. And do you know what some of the rabbis in Jesus' day and in Paul's day were saying about Abraham? Here's what they were saying. Things like this. Our father Abraham performed the whole law before it was written. Or our father Abraham was perfect in all his deeds so that he had no need of repentance. This was actually being said by rabbis concerning Father Abraham. But Paul asked the question, how did righteous Abraham become righteous? How did righteous Abraham become righteous? And Paul says Abraham is an example not of righteousness by his works, as great as they were, but an unearned righteousness that was given to him because of his faith. And so the key verse is found, look at chapter 4, verse 3, as he brings up this example of Abraham. How was Abraham righteous before God? Verse 3, what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now here, Paul is quoting another hero of the Jewish people from the hall of faith. He's 
referring to Moses who wrote this statement in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Here's the context. Here's what Moses wrote down about Abraham's life. God had promised Abraham for many years that he would be the father of a great nation. Years went past. Years went past. And now Abraham is a, he's in his mid-80s and he still has no child. And God leads Abraham out into that wilderness area at night causes him to look up at the stars and the whole sky is filled with stars and here's what God says to Abraham. Abraham, if you can count these stars, then you will be able to count your descendants. And then the Bible makes a statement. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now I want you to notice there are three things we learn about faith through Abraham's faith. Notice this. First of all, we learn what faith is. We learn what faith is. Abraham believed God. <laughs> he believed God. Literally, you know what it is? Abraham said, Amen. <laughs> Amen. So be it. At its very core, faith is a matter of trust. What is faith? Faith is a matter of trust, reliance. I like to think of the meaning of the word faith by using the word faith. It's, it's helpful in English. Faith, F-A-I-T-H. What is faith? Forsaking all, I trust him. <laughs> That's faith. Forsaking any other hope, I trust him. I trust Jesus. That's what faith is. It is a trust. It's a reliance on God in Christ. The first thing we learn from Abraham about faith is we learn what faith is. And secondly, we learn from Abraham what faith believes. What faith believes. Faith is not faith in faith. We hear a lot of teaching about faith today, especially in some of the social media. And it's really shared as faith in your faith. But my friend, if I have faith in my faith, I'm not going to have much faith. How about you? It's not faith in my faith. Faith has to have an object. And the object of faith is God himself. <laughs> faith has to have an object. You can't just have faith in faith and it be of any value. It would be like uh, this, for example. Let's say that I, uh, I have a, a, a checkbook, okay? I'm going to use the checkbook. Don't write me checks anymore. But let's say I'm going to write a few checks. And I've got $100 in that account. And I decide just to go around Knoxville buying things, buying things. And I write a check. I write a check. Write a check. <laughs> And finally, I'm, I'm stopped in doing this. And I, I'm told that, uh, well, listen, this, this doesn't work. You don't, you don't have sufficient funds. And I, I just said, well, you know, officer, listen. And, and your honor, listen. I just have faith in faith. <laughs> I just wrote those by faith. I have faith in faith. What's going to happen? Well, I'll tell you what's going to happen. Very soon, I'm going to have a prison ministry. That's what's going to happen <laughs> Not going to be accepted. Faith has to have an object outside of ourselves. And that object is God Himself. Abraham believed God. He believed God's promises because they were God's 
promises. He believed God. Yes, it seemed impossible. 85 years old. I have no child as the heir that you promised. But he believed God. And friends, faith is the same today. It's not changed in these millennia. Faith is still today trusting in the promises of God that he's made through Jesus Christ. That's faith. Faith is trusting in Jesus, trusting that he is the Son of God, trusting that he did live that perfect life, trusting that he did die on that cross and he died for me, trusting he did rise again from the dead and that he offers salvation, trusting that if I come to him, he will not turn me away. This is faith. This is the gospel. We learn that from Abraham. He believed God. Now, notice the third truth we learn about faith from Abraham. We learn what faith not only is and what faith believes, but what faith receives. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him for righteousness. What did he receive? righteousness. Now, if you read this passage, chapter 4, 11 times, 11 times, the word counted is used or reckoned or the idea is imputed. 11 times. And the word here is a term out of accounting. The Greek word is logizomai. Logizomai. And it means to credit to credit like a deposit. So where, where did Abraham's righteousness come from? Not out of himself. The righteousness was deposited to his account. Abraham believed God, and on the basis of his faith in God, God credited that to Abraham for righteousness. Now, where did this righteousness come from? It didn't come from Abraham. It did not come from his faith. Listen carefully. His righteousness came from Jesus. His righteousness came from Jesus. Now, you say, wait a minute. Sam, I don't know a lot about the Bible chronology, but I do know this. Abraham didn't know anything about Jesus. Well, wait a minute. Abraham knew more than you might suppose. Because here's what Jesus said. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 56, Abraham saw my day, and he was glad. Somehow, someway, where we are not clearly told, Abraham had an understanding of a redeemer who was coming, one of his descendants who would bring salvation. And Abraham, by faith, saw that day coming, and he was glad. But here's what I want you to understand something about Abraham's salvation. It doesn't matter if Abraham saw Jesus. What matters is God saw Jesus. <laughs> God, for whom there is no past, present, or future. Eternal God saw his son living for Abraham, dying for Abraham, rising again for Abraham. And on the basis of Abraham's faith, the righteousness of Jesus was credited to Abraham's account. What happened to Abraham, listen, happens to every person who believes in the Lord. I like to call it cross-accounting, cross-accounting. And I've used this many times to share the gospel with people, to help them understand it. And God has blessed this discussion 
with many people coming to Christ. What I do is I just draw a cross on a piece of paper. And I say, let's let this cross represent two ledgers. Your ledger on one side, the ledger of Jesus on the other side. <laughs> now let's look at your ledger. <laughs> what are your assets? Zero. <laughs> because we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous. No, not one. So that's my assets. What about my debts? <laughs> My debts are innumerable. So if I look at my ledger, the ledger of Sam Polson, I, I have no, no righteousness, and I have all these moral debts, my sin. But now look at the other ledger on the other side of the cross. This is the ledger of Jesus. How many debts does Jesus have? He has no debts. He knew no sin. He committed no sin. What righteousness does he have? Perfect righteousness as a son of God and a sinless life. And so what happens? When I have faith, Jesus' ledger is credited to me and my ledger is credited to Jesus. And this is exactly how Paul described salvation. By faith. He said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, God, has made him, Jesus, to become sin for us, even though he knew no sin, that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. My sins placed to Jesus' account Jesus' righteousness placed to my account. That is the gospel. And believing that brings me a righteousness from God. Look back at chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. This is what Paul's talking about. Look at it. 3, 21, 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, a righteousness of God, a righteousness from God, through faith in Christ, for all who believe, for there is no distinction. Now I ask you, is this not good news? It's not my inherent righteousness. It's not what I can do. It's a foreign righteousness. It's a righteousness that belongs to Christ that is granted to me. And placed to my account as my sins are placed to his account as he died on the cross. Well now, Paul being the great debater that he is, he already anticipates the questions people are going to have. Here's what he anticipates. Well, okay. That might work for a good man like Abraham. But what about people who have done terrible things all their life long? That might work for Abraham, but what about people who've done terrible things? And you know what Paul's answer is? Listen carefully to just grasp the gospel. The answer is God does not save good people. God saves bad people. <laughs> you say, well, what? God doesn't save good people. No, he saves bad people. Look at verse 5. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies, declares righteous, the ungodly, his faith, is counted as righteousness. It does not say God justifies good people. He doesn't. He, he justifies the ungodly on the basis of Christ in response to their faith in Him. 
God justifies by faith alone. Now, friends, that is hope for a sinner like me. Is it hope for you? That Jesus did not come for the well. He came for the sick. He did not come for those who are alive. He came for those who are dead in their sins. And this is the faith of Abraham, who, ju- who is justified not out of his righteousness, but even as a sinner, he was justified by faith alone through Christ. So it's faith alone for Abraham. But now notice, Paul uses a second example from the hall of fame of the, of the Jewish people. Not just Abraham, but Paul says it's faith alone for David. Faith alone for David. Look at verse 6. He says, just as David also speaks of the blessing of one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Verse 7. Blessed, this is quoting David, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Now, Abraham is Israel's greatest patriarch. And David is Israel's greatest king. Abraham, as Paul has just shown us, is an example of unearned righteousness. He never earned it. It was a free gift on the basis of his faith in God. But here David, listen carefully, he is an example of undeserved righteousness. Not just unearned, but undeserved righteousness. Now, yes, David was the hero. Listen carefully what I'm about to share with you. David was the hero of Israel. He was their greatest musician. He was their great soldier. He was their great king. He was the great prophet. He was the greatest poet. That's all true of David. But listen, church, this is also true of David. He was a liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. A liar, an adulterer, and a murderer. And any Jewish person reading verse 7, listen, any Jewish person would recognize that as a quote from Psalm 32. Psalm 32. And that is where David is writing after. He's writing after the great disaster of his life. What was the great disaster of his life? He committed adultery with Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And then, to try to cover it up, he had Uriah murdered by putting him forward in battle and then having the soldiers pull back so that he would die. In Psalm 51, we have David's prayer of repentance because God sent a prophet to him named Nathan. And he said, David, you are the man. You are the guilty one. And God broke David's heart. And he repented. And he, he wrote this song, Psalm 51, of repentance. But also, he then wrote Psalm 32, which was a praise for his restoration back to God. He offers up praise that he has been forgiven by God's great grace. Look at verses 7 and 8. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count. There's that word, legizomai. Will not count his sin. He will not be charged for his sin. The same word used with Abraham who believed God. It was counted to him for righteousness. 
notice the difference here. Make sure you see the difference. With Abraham, his faith was counted for righteousness. And with David, because of his faith, trusting God's forgiving grace, his sin was not counted against him by God. Two great lessons we learn from David about salvation. There was absolutely nothing David could do. Listen carefully. What David did was premeditated. Look in the Bible. Look up all the sacrifices. There was no sacrifice for premeditated sin. None. There was no sacrifice for premeditated sin. All David could do, all he could do was to have a hope in a God who would be gracious and forgiving, to plead for mercy. He didn't plead for justice, no. He pled for mercy. And God gave him so much more than he asked for. He, he pled for mercy. And the Bible says his sins were forgiven. They were covered. And they were not charged to his account. From David's experience, we learn a second great truth about salvation here. That through faith alone... Salvation is freely bestowed. It's freely bestowed. <laughs> Undeserved. But salvation also is offered in which our sin is forever banished. Our sin is forever banished. God's grace, church, God's grace is so great that not only are our sins forgiven our sins are forgotten. Not only are they forgiven, they're forgotten. The prophet Nathan, who said, you are the man. When David repented and prayed before the Lord and begged for mercy, Nathan came back to him and said this, 2 Samuel 12, 13, the Lord has put away your sins, you shall not die. The Lord has put away your sins, you shall not die. So here's the question. Where did God put David's sin? If he put away his sin, where did he put David's sin? Friends, here's the answer. God put David's sins on Jesus. David's adultery was placed on Jesus. David's lying was placed on Jesus. David's murder was placed on Jesus. What God promised David, he promises anyone who will come to him and ask for mercy, their sins, he says, I will remember no more. Listen to the promise of the Lord. Your sins and your iniquities, I will remember no more more. Christians, we need to rejoice in this. I mean, we need to rejoice in this this morning, this great truth. Listen carefully. If you are a Christian, if your hope is in Christ, your only trust is in Christ, listen carefully. God is not keeping a record of your sins. God is not keeping a record of your sins because your sins were paid in full by Jesus Christ. Past, present, future. Jesus died for the sins you haven't committed yet. He died for all of our sins. It's paid in full. Our record never contains our sins before God. He says, I will remember them no more. Our sins have been dealt with and they are not accounted to us because the righteousness of Christ has been applied to us. The re listen, the record God is keeping about you, Christian, 
The record he is keeping in heaven is not the record of your sins. He's keeping the record of your service for him. Do you serve him? Will you serve him? How are you serving him? When we are before the Lord as Christians, our hope and the truth is the record of our wrongs was nailed to the cross of Christ. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Oh, my soul. Paid in full. David is now in heaven. David's now in heaven. How did he get there? Through faith alone. Abraham is now in heaven. How did he get there? Through faith alone. My friends, it's faith alone for Abraham. It's faith alone for David. It's faith alone for everyone. Faith alone for everyone. Look at verse 9. Is this blessing? What blessing? Justification by faith. Not having your sins counted against you. Being declared righteous. Is this blessing? then only for the circumcised, only for the Jewish people? Or is it also for the uncircumcised, the Gentile people? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but it was before. Now, Here is where Paul goes to the heart of the argument and he sweeps away all opposition because this is his point. Just as all people, Jews and Gentiles, are guilty before God as sinners, all people, Jews and Gentiles, can be righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's his message, through faith alone. And so he uses Abraham again. (laughs) He says this, what what is this? Was Was he declared righteous before or after this ritual of circumcision? No, his faith is not based on a ritual. Faith is not based on anyone's ritual. The most sacred ritual of the Jewish people was the ritual of circumcision, the sign of the the covenant relationship between Abraham and his descendants and God. But notice this. When was Abraham circumcised? When he was 99 years old. 14 years after God had said to him, look at the stars, count them. If you can count them, then you can know the descendants you have. And the Bible says, Abraham believed God. How old was he? 85. He believed God. And it was counted to him right then for righteousness. And he would not experience this ritual of circumcision for 14 years. But he was already (laughs) counted as righteousness. Do you understand the startling truth here, church? Listen carefully. The truth is here, it can be said of Abraham, he was saved before he became a Jew. Before he became a Jew. He was a Gentile, just one of the nations. He was a believer 14 years before he went through the ritual of what would be considered the sign of Jewishness. So Abraham was the example of salvation by faith not after this ritual, but before, so that he can be the father of all who believe, whether they have any ritual or not, regardless of any ritual of religion. 
whether it's Jewish or Gentile, he is the father of all because all who share faith in God as Abraham did are the sons and daughters of Abraham by faith. So my friend, listen. Centuries haven't changed anything. No ritual can save you. No baptism. No communion. No act of penance. No sacrament that you can name can save you. It's important. Those are external signs of an internal reality. But apart from the internal reality of faith, those symbols mean nothing. Faith is not based on religious ritual. Faith is not based on rules. Verse 13. Paul reminds them of something. The promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. When was Abraham declared to be righteous? Listen carefully. 600 years before Moses. 600 years before the law. Abraham is not an example of someone who was declared righteous because of a ritual. He was declared righteous before the ritual. He was declared righteous 600 years before the rules of the law were given. He is the example of salvation by faith. Because works cannot save us. Chapter 3, verse 20 What does it say here in verse 20 of chapter 3? By the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. The law was not given to save us. The law was given to show us how desperately we need to be saved and to lead us to only the mercy of grace of God in Christ who kept the law for us. Salvation is only by faith based on the free grace of God in Jesus. Faith alone in the unmerited grace of God in Jesus Christ. It really is amazing, isn't it? Faith alone for Abraham. Faith alone for David. Faith alone for you. Let me share this true story, and then we close. Several years ago, a young man who happened to be a dance instructor was out late after the class partying hardy. This young man staggered back to his hotel room, flopped across his bed, became unconscious in sleep. In the early hours of the morning, he was awakened by his alarm clock, which had gone off to a radio station. And in the wee hours, a man was speaking, and the man's name was Donald Barnhouse, a pastor from Philadelphia. He was teaching on the book of Romans. And here is what the man heard as he came back into consciousness on that hotel bed. He heard Dr. Barnhouse ask this question. If in the next few moments a great disaster took place and you were standing before God and God were to say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And that young man was dumbfounded by that question. He realized he had no answer. And so he sat up bolt right in bed and he listened to everything that Dr. Barnhouse had to say. And then he got out of that bed and he got on his knees and he cried out to God for salvation in Christ. And that young dance instructor's name was 
Jim Kennedy, who would be D. James Kennedy, who would in time become pastor of the largest Presbyterian church in America, Coral Ridge Presbyterian. And he started a ministry called Evangelism Explosion. And the first question that people who take the class in learning to share their faith, the first question they are taught to ask someone is this. If you were standing before God right now, and he would say to you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would your answer be? That was the question that gripped his heart and brought him to faith in the grace of Jesus. Now, friend, I'm going to ask you something. Your eternal soul is at stake. If you, today, were to stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you in my heaven? What would you tell him? What would you tell him? Let's bow our heads in prayer. Oh Lord, I thank you that there is an answer to that question. And the answer is grace in Jesus Christ. Amazing grace, dumbfounding grace that Jesus, your son, lived the life not one of us could live, died the death that each one of us deserved, paid in full the debt of sin, and he will save to the uttermost all who come to God by him. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name, may every person in this room forsake all and say, I trust him. May there be none here who has any hope other than casting themselves before Jesus and trusting him. And Lord, thank you for everyone who calls upon you in that faith. Their faith is counted for righteousness. And their sin will never be counted to them because it's on Christ. Oh, Lord, I pray for that wonderful, wonderful, amazing, eternity-changing moment for every person in this room or who hears this message. And, oh, Lord, may that grace grip us that the life that we now live in this flesh, we live by the faith of the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We serve you because of the great love that you've shown to us. Lord, compel us with that love. Lead us to share it more and more and live it. Lord, we worship you and we sing to you now and we do put our mind on Calvary. And we praise the name of the Lord, our God. Amen.